Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. Hi, I'm Magdalena Morsi and I curate the cultural programme here at Second Home. In this episode, we have the award-winning author and professor, James Shapiro. He's in conversation with our co-founder, Rohan Silver. They discuss his latest book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. It reveals what Shakespeare can teach us about the nation's fault lines around race, gender, immigration and free speech. Enjoy. I'm Rohan Silver, founder of Second Home, and uh, it's lovely having you all here with us. Thank you for tuning in. Um, but huge, special thanks to Professor James Shapiro, Jim Shapiro, for, for joining us from New York, live from New York, to talk about his brilliant new book. I'm going to hold it up, but in, in uh, Kindle form, <laughs> um, or Shakespeare in Divided America. Um, it's available for sale in our bookshop, Liberia, and we can post it out to you as as well. And, you know, really, really uh, an incredible book. And we're, we're in for a treat uh, talking about it today. Um, for those of you who don't know about our cultural program, it's open to everyone. And, you know, we've been lucky to have um, people from, you know, Nassim Taleb and Richard Thaler, um, you know, great, great academics through to, um, you know, fashion designers like Stella McCartney and Bella Freud, uh, through to political leaders, the mayor of London, the mayor of LA, and, and so on. And the whole idea is to uh, expose uh, our, our audience to as many different ideas and inspirations from different domains as possible. We think that's how innovation and creativity comes about. And in our spaces at Second Home in London, Lisbon, LA, we try and smash together as many different types of people as, as possible through our cultural program, through our workspaces, and, and so on. So, you know, at Second Home on any given day, you'll find, you know, refugee charities working next to tech companies, um, you know, people working on genetics next to people working on fashion. And out of those collisions, we think great things happen. So it's a huge honor to be continuing uh, that program today uh, with, with uh, Professor James Shapiro. I'm going to read out his uh, bit of his incredibly impressive bio. He needs very little introduction, but uh, uh, James Shapiro, Larry Miller, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, where he's taught since 1985. And uh, in 2011, he was in, inducted into the hugely prestigious American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Um, he's written uh, a bunch of incredible books. Um, two of them I have with me. I was only allowed to bring a handful of books to America, to LA, where I currently am, uh, but two of them really were um, 1599 and 1606 by, by James, and I can't recommend them enough. If you want to go for the, the holy trinity of his new book and these two, um, I strongly, strongly recommend it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick off um, uh, talking, talking about uh, James's, Jim's new book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. Um, and and his, his new book begins as follows, read by almost everyone at school, uh, staged in theatres 
uh, across the land and long valued by conservatives as highly as by liberals, Shakespeare's plays remain common ground, one of the few places where Americans can meet and air their disparate views. So I, my opening question, Jim, really is, it's quite surprising, I think, to the international audience tuning in that Shakespeare should have such resonance right from the founding of America, given that America, it was a rejection of Britain and the old country and the old values. What, what do you think explains this, this resonance and relevance? You know, that was the question I tried stepping around <laughs> as, as best I could. And one of the early readers uh, of my book, uh, a mutual friend uh, of yours and mine, Daniel Swift, said, how do you explain this? You, you have to answer that question. And after I got over my resentment of being asked a question I really couldn't answer, I really buckled down and tried to answer it as best I could. And to the extent that I'm able to address why America would embrace as its national poet, the national poet of a country it had just broken with in 1776 and would have frayed relationships with for quite some time. You could say we didn't have our own great writers. You could say that he was taught in schools and in elocution courses and the like. But the best answer I have is America is founded on a couple of really horrible things. One is slavery and racism, and the other is the destruction or near destruction of indigenous populations. And we're a country that has invented itself at the same time that it has suppressed those foundations. Shakespeare's plays are the only validated cultural form in America that lets us, even if only obliquely, confront the mess we've always been in. You want to talk about racism? We don't talk about racism. We do go to see Othello. You want to talk about anti-Semitism? We don't talk about that. Okay, let's stage the Merchant of Venice. You want to talk about the oppression of women? You know, it's not really something we're comfortable talking about. But all of a sudden, you have the Taming of the Shrew or any of the comedies, for that matter. So play after play after play, whether it's about republicanism or uh, tyranny, Julius Caesar, Coriolanus, these plays sail into view at critical moments in the nation's history and force us or enable us, since they're the only common ground we have, to wrestle with things we'd rather not wrestle with. Amazing. The, um, I should say as well to everyone listening, do post your questions on the Q&A um, and we'll, we'll set aside loads of time to, to throw them at, at Jim. So you, you said there that uh, you know, these, these plays sort of pop up at particular moments in history and your book is structured around you know, big, big topics, immigration, race and so on, and the way certain plays in particular interact with those. Let's, let's sort of pick some of those. I mean, you know, take, take race. Uh, for, for example, and obviously Othello, you might, you know, but the, the, the extent to which Othello became central to conversations is, is, is absolutely incredible. I wonder, Jim, if you can tell the audience, you know, the, the, the story perhaps of uh, some of the performances of Othello in the antebellum South, I'm thinking sort of Texas, mid-19th century. Incredible. Sure. Um, I'll give three snapshots on Othello. The first is, the first great African-American Shakespearean, Ira Aldridge, could not play Othello 
in America, had to set sail, landed in London, and in 1825, he was performing Othello there and throughout Europe in the coming decades. It wasn't until over a century later that an African-American could play Othello on Broadway when Paul Robeson did it there. And that just tells you all you need to know about that century of slavery and post-slavery America. Next anecdote. The play was incredibly popular in the South, which kind of shocked me until the Civil War, after which it was not staged at all. And you have writers even after the Civil War uh, writing essays about Othello saying, Othello was a white man. Mary Preston famously wrote those words. She couldn't wrap her head around this. And the first chapter in my book describes uh, the worst dinner party in in history or recorded history, or one of the worst at least, um, where the former president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, uh, sixth president of the United States, was seated next to the leading Shakespeare actor of her day, Fanny Kemble, who had come over on a US tour in the uh, 1830s. And he spent the evening mansplaining Shakespeare to this great Shakespeare actor in the course of which he, using the N-word, made uh, comments about how Desdemona in marrying Othello, who then strangled and smothered her, got what she deserved. Now, for those listeners, not knowing much about John Quincy Adams. He's one of the great abolitionists in American history. He fought slavery. He fought the expansion of slave states. After he was president, he went back into the House of Representatives to fight against slavery. He was the enemy of slavery, but he couldn't wrap his head around a white woman sleeping with a black man. We call it miscegenation. They called it amalgamation. So the early point Uh, in the book that I'm trying to make is liberals, as much as those who are reactionary, have a race problem. Mm -hmm. And um, his his, uh, uh, mistake was uh, upon discovering she had published their dinner conversation in her travels in America, he responded or retaliated by publishing a couple of essays, traducing Desdemona, which uh, put him in the infamous camp. So it's a mess in this country. And even people who are well-intentioned are at a fundamental level capable of deeply racist sentiment, but it only comes out when they talk about Shakespeare. John Quincy Adams never in his tens of thousands of diary pages or in his published works, never gives a hint of his difficulty with white women and black men. It's incredible as well, and it speaks to that centrality of, of Shakespeare to the culture, that a former president would take the time to opine and, and comment on a play. You know, uh, it's incredibly interesting that, and I suppose also speaks to the fact that it was a common cultural currency. You could be talking to people about archetypes in a way that the, the, your audience or the person you're writing to will understand. You know, his his father was the second president of the United States, John Adams. And he writes to young John Quincy saying, um, I, 
I've been reading Shakespeare and the thought occurs to me, and he does a riff on Henry V, that a future president who's kind of just like Donald Trump might get involved with foreign dictators and get financially caught up and be obligated to them in certain ways. It's Shakespeare that's leading him to see the problems in the republic that he is establishing. So the connections and tentacles are kind of were kind of scary to me as I was researching this book. It's amazing. The other chapter that, I mean, this, we'll, we'll, we'll run through a bunch of them, but another chapter that sort of blew me away was on assassination. And, you know, one of the two most famous, at least for international audience, assassinations in American history, JFK, but then there's the assassination of, of, of Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth. And the extent to which Lincoln and his assassinator, uh, his assassin, were both obsessed with Shakespeare, um, but different plays, particularly, interestingly, I just thought it was incredibly, incredibly interesting. That chapter on Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth uh, kept threatening to be the book or a book itself. Right. I kept kind of hacking away at it to make it smaller. And it kept saying, no, 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 this story deserves, you know, just like a bad actor pushing other actors off the stage. <laughs> and it was all I could do to kind of put it in the, the, the uh, compactor and get it down to size. And it was the most thrilling to research because you can blame Shakespeare for the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's obsession with theater. He was there almost every night that he could go to one of the three theaters near the, the White House. Much of it was Shakespeare. And his assassin was a pretty good, if not superstar, Shakespeare actor. And they love Shakespeare, but they love different Shakespeare's. So for example, Lincoln would obsessively read from Macbeth because he was depressive, guilt-ridden, 700,000 Americans had died on his watch in this bloody civil war. And he kept turning to a kind of reflective, remorseful, guilty Macbeth again and again. And anytime he caught anybody in a room where he was either at the telegraph office waiting news from the front door in the White House, he would force his visitors to sit and listen to him recite from these plays, which he could do verbatim. A guy with no formal education at all, except really for Shakespeare. John Wilkes Booth's Macbeth was uh, what we would call today uh, um, a kind of lost cause figure, uh, a fallen heroic figure. And uh, Booth just kind of wanted to get through the first four acts so that he could get to the fight scene in act five and show how manly he was. So even in that character of Macbeth, you see two different visions, John Wilkes Booth's white supremacist vision of America and Lincoln's guilt-ridden, we'll get through this somehow version of American uh, history. It's amazing. And also, uh, you know, the, the other sort of resonance that's interesting is, you know, in your book, 1606, you, you know, you write about Macbeth being a, a sort of, uh, at least partly a response to the gunpowder plot. So in other words, a sort of an attempt at mass assassination, political assassination, continuing to have a sort of resonance with a, you know, an assassination, a huge epochal assassination that happened, you know, uh, 200 years later. You know, right after the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, 
I got a bunch of emails from strangers, which I always enjoy getting and responding to. One of them said, I was just reading your book on 1606, the gunpowder plotters as those who tried to break into parliament and destroy government that way. And others citing Shakespeare in a divided America, how right wingers stormed the public theater uh, at the Delacorte in Central Park. So I keep stumbling over somehow these recurrent events in which Shakespeare was there before us. So it looks like I'm prophetic and all I'm doing is typing out what Shakespeare said 400 years ago and how we are still reenacting the, the stories that he uh, first explored so brilliantly. Yeah, it, it, you know, and the storming of the capital, I suppose, is a, is a good, good segue to another chapter in your book on the sort of polarization of American life and, and, and this schism between left and left and right, and, and the staging, which I actually hadn't sort of clocked, but staging um, of Julius Caesar in 2017, I think. Um, yeah. and, and you know, that that's the, the bookend, uh, that story bookends uh, uh, Shakespeare in a divided America. And uh, for those who weren't fortunate enough to see that production, the artistic director of the public theater in New York, Oscar Eustace, decided right after Trump was elected in 2016 <clears throat> to stage Julius Caesar in the park with a Trump lookalike as Julius Caesar and to have him assassinated on stage. And Eustace's plan was to create a sense of whiplash in his mostly liberal New York theater going audience so that yeah, we wanted to get rid of Trump, but is it legitimate to do so by undemocratic means, like killing him? And he wanted to create a conversation about this. What he didn't anticipate, and no one really anticipated four years ago, was this wasn't about having a conversation. This was about reacting violently if you did not like what was being said about Donald Trump or a Donald Trump surrogate. And mind you, um, Julius Caesar had just been staged in New York under Obama's regime with an Obama lookalike who was assassinated. Nobody complained, nobody said a word. They just politely applauded at the end of the production. This was different because Fox News and right-wing groups decided to declare war on this production. And far-right extreme groups were paying $1,000 to anybody who could disrupt and stop this show. Wow. And the FBI got involved, Secret Service, all kinds of uh, uh, police forces because the death threats were coming fast and furious. I advised this production, so I got to sit in the theater every night. Mm -hmm. And the tension was unbearable. And it was made worse because Eustace had a big budget as artistic director of his company. So in this modern dress production, he had planted 50 young actors throughout the 2000 people in the audience who, when the Trump-like Caesar was assassinated, stood up and started heckling Brutus and the other conspirators, which really unnerved the crowd. But what <laughs> topped, things in a, topped things off was when you had real protesters rushing the stage after the fake protesters who were actors began heckling. And uh, then audiences were really, truly confused. And there's a really a direct line between 
that production and what happened on January 6th in, in the Capitol in Washington, D.C., where rabid Trump lovers could not see any perspective other than their own. And the whole notion of conversation that Americans have had with and over Shakespeare for a couple of hundred years was thrown out the window. And all the right wanted to do was shut it down. Mm. The, um, there is something about that Julius Caesar in particular that just seems to, you know, sort of sort of resonate. I, I was looking again at the, the great piece by John Carlin in the FT from a number of years ago about um, the ANC um, uh, sort of campaigners and Nelson Mandela and their obsession with Shakespeare in, in Robben Island when they were in prison, but also prior. In 1944, Nelson Mandela, in a manifesto, he wrote, uh, he used a line from Julius Caesar, uh, the, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. And and, and Carlin says, you know, of, of, of uh, the ANC, they use Shakespeare, Carlin wrote, as a way of developing their own moral sense. And I suppose, coming back to the, sort of the Shakespeare text, you know, when he wrote Julius Caesar, of course, very dangerous for Shakespeare to be getting into questions of assassinating a, a ruler, a king, effectively. Um, you could you could be killed for that as a playwright if you get it wrong. So in a sense, he had to be incredibly clever in writing ambiguously, which presumably is part of the reason that it can be so easily and interestingly interpreted at different times by different people. You know, almost alone of the plays Shakespeare wrote around Julius Caesar, the Henry IV plays, As You Like It. Uh, um, Julius Caesar was not published in its own day. Mm -hmm. 24 years would pass before it appeared for the first time in print in the first folio. I think it was radioactive then. It was radioactive in that Robin Islands volume that was passed around among those in prison there. I, I've seen that volume when it was exhibited and I get chills looking at Mandela and others uh, uh, underlining passages like the one you just mentioned. Those political prisoners uh, uh, in South Africa understood that these words had power and they spoke truth to power. Shakespeare understood it, but unlike almost every other dramatist of his day, Ben Johnson, Marlowe, Kidd, you know, Marlowe's assassinated, Kidd is tortured by the state, Chapman and Ben Johnson are in prison. Shakespeare never went to jail for his work. So he, he walked that line and maybe he strayed over it a few times, but he never got called out for it. But mm. these plays are, are really, to me, radioactive. Yeah, it's a great term. And I think, you know, for all, for all the people tuning in, I know we've got a very global audience watching but you know for those i think from from the uk uh i was born born in the uk and you know i think shakespeare can often get in the box put in the box of, of sort of twee and safe and establishment not sort of insurgent and radical which is another great reason to pick up um jim's jim's book because it really reminds you of the, the power uh, of, of, of shakespeare um picking another of the of the of the chapters um and topics Immigration being another one that uh, you know Shakespeare's helped inform. Now, thinking of the the tempests particularly, and and how that helped shape the debate in in America, and particularly the early twentieth century. 
You know, when Benson in in the London production of of The Tempest uh, in the, at the end of the 19th century, in which uh, Benson was playing Caliban, uh, he famously went to the zoo in London to study the primates in order to understand and play properly the character of Caliban. Mm. And in this post-Darwinian moment, they were thinking he's half man, half beast. Now, he's not half man, half beast, although he's described as beastly by some pretty beastly characters in the play. So Caliban has become a way in which we can kind of take the temperature of a culture and how it imagines the other. And uh, in England, in Britain, in Ireland, in Germany, in France, productions deal with that in different ways than they do in America. And America in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, had its population swollen by immigrants. Donald Trump's ancestors came over from Germany. My wife's ancestors came over from Ireland. My ancestors came over from Eastern Europe. And a lot of people were not happy with the fact that what they imagined to be a white Anglo-Saxon nation was now multicultural. And we're still working out those debates. We're still fighting over walls on our southern border. And a play like The Tempest, which nobody ever staged or cared about in America in the 19th century, more or less, all of a sudden became important mm. in the aftermath of immigration debates that were really tearing the country apart in the first couple of decades of the 20th century until in 1924, we shut the door on uh, immigrants that we did not want, immigrants of color, for example. And there was a, a wonderful production on the anniversary, 300th anniversary of Shakespeare's uh, uh, death in 1916. It was called Caliban uh, of the Yellow Sands and was staged in New York and in Boston large scale theater, thousands of actors and participants, tens of thousands of people watching. And mm -hmm. Caliban is depicted by a liberal dramatist, Percy McKay, as basically my ancestor, uh, not perfect in his English, uh, threatening to sexually violate the purity of Miranda and never actually fully integrating. Mm -hmm. So if you want to, again, take the temperature of America at any moment. Just look at how they are staging a volatile play like The Merchant of Venice or The Tempest or uh, Othello. And um, I think of Shakespeare as kind of a canary in the coal mine. There are toxic cultural forces at work. They're invisible. You don't smell them. You don't see them until they kill you. Carry mm -hmm. that canary down, carry that volume of Shakespeare with you and it will alert you to what is toxic. That's really great. That's a great line. There's another. There's a point you make in the in the chapter on, on race and the the tempest and the, the resonance of the tempest in you know the height of the immigration debates in the early 20th century. You write um, his comedies, Shakespeare's comedies, almost always end uh, with the um, the creation of a new social order defined by who is included and who is kept out. So I, I never thought of that. Um, you know, sort of analysis or sort of light motif of his his comedies. I mean, would you mind talking about it a bit more? Yeah, you know, connection to the Tempest. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad um, you pointed that out. Um, most interviewers, 
that goes right by. That, that was the one insight that while writing the book just made me feel writing the book was worth it. <laughs> we, we come to the end of Shakespeare comedies, whichever comedy they are, The Tempest, Merchant of Venice, uh, Twelfth Night. And we love seeing people married at the end. We love seeing the communal dance, the feasting, the music starts swelling. We're feeling good. Our theater companions are smiling. We're going to walk out, have a couple of drinks, and who knows what. Shakespeare knew that when he's writing these plays. And yet, in every one of those plays I mentioned, the community that's formed at the end is only formed by exclusion. Because you can't define an inclusive community without excluding someone. Shylock, boom, left out. Malvolio, I'll be revenged on you all, sent packing. Jaquees, and as you like it, he's gone. Caliban mm -hmm. is left waving as everybody else leaves the island at the end of the Tempest. And you begin to realize there's a pattern here, a pattern of exclusion. And anybody who's lived in my country, the United States, under Donald Trump's regime, knows that that pattern is not in the service of comedy, but in the service of a nationalist America first sensibility. I'm not attributing that to Shakespeare. I am saying that it dovetails perfectly with that political agenda. So it's amazing. And it, it's well, without getting too sort of nerdy and also way out of my um, you know, abilities to, 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 to uh, uh, I didn't study Shakespeare since I, was, since I was 18 years old, but the, you know, the, the, I think the classical sort of definition of a comedy would be one where the social order is kind of turned upside down and then turned right at the end. In other words, you're sort of back to normal, maybe with, you know, a couple united or there's some progress, some, someone's in love at the end one, but, you know, broadly speaking, things are back to normal. Whereas, you know, this interpretation of his comedies is, is different to that. There is a change and then the change being, as you say, someone's excluded. You know, it's what's hard for me is I spent many years as a theater goer unaware of these forces. And it was reinforced by critics who told me The Merchant of Venice is a happy comedy. The Tempest ends beautifully with a benevolent uh, Prospero in his beneficence to Caliban and to Ariel. And great productions kind of shook that up. San Mendes, before he was making a bundle doing James Bond, was maybe the greatest young Shakespeare director of his day. And he did a Tempest that I saw, I think in 1982, in Stratford-upon-Avon with Simon Russell Beale as Ariel. Ariel is usually played either by a woman or a very slim Peter mm. Pan-like man. And back in the day, Simon Russell Beale's, if not the greatest Shakespeare actor of our day, is in the top three and will be recorded as such uh, for millennia. He was playing in a narrow jacket that was two sizes too small for him, a 200-pound Ariel. And Ariel is the perfect servant. And we've watched productions of The Tempest in which Ariel is ever grateful to Prospero. And at the end of that play, Prospero turns to Ariel and says, and now I set you free. And Simon Russell Beale had been working on a wad of spit for the last 15 minutes. And he <laughs> turns to Prospero and spits it in his face. 
and the theater critics in London freaked out. We will not allow this travesty. And by the time the play got to London, they left out the spit, but I saw the spit. And at stake in that spit was all the shit people have to take when working for their betters or for working for abusive bosses. And it just signaled a sea change in our understanding of that play. And I'm ever grateful to them both for that moment. Yeah, amazing. There's uh, you know, a whole bunch of other you know, big sweeping topics in the, in the, in the book. Um, another is uh, same-sex relationships and, and the way in which uh, Shakespeare and, and uh, the response to Shakespeare um, reflects the, the changing times. But the, this chapter is a bit different in that you're looking at Shakespeare in love, their Tom Stoppard um, you know, written, written um, screenplay. And I knew nothing about so I've seen the film, but knew nothing about the original script and how much it had changed under studio pressure on the same sex point. I wonder if you can share that with the. Sure. I really wanted to get my hands on that original script. Didn't matter to me who I had to sleep with or kill. I wanted that original script. And I wrote to the screenwriter and clearly he was not going to share it. It's never been published. So I thought, okay, I'll just keep working at it. And I went down to the Ransom Library in, in Austin, Texas, one of the great research libraries in, in the world, where Stoppard had sold his papers. And I got to spend a lot of time with Tom Stoppard. And I found Stoppard's own copy of that original with Stoppard's characteristic emendations and handwriting all over it. So I had found that treasure. And I learned a lot of things. One, I learned uh, that Stoppard is one of the most generous human beings on this planet. Countless people writing to him for favors or money. He just send checks. You know, I never knew that about him. But I also learned that he came upon this script uh, in which Shakespeare originally, in Shakespeare in Love, is a heterosexual guy who falls in love with a man and kind of says, okay, I, I love a guy. I'm married to Anne Hathaway, but I really love this man. Stoppard comes in, takes the temperature of the day, realizes there's no way we're going to win 13 Oscars or be nominated for them if this is really a gay story. And he heterosexualizes the story. And if you watch the film with Gwyneth Paltrow, even the scene where there's a reveal, uh, uh, it, it's heteronormative or whatever word you want to put in it. Stopper just said, this gay story is just not going to work that way. We'll gesture at it, but that's not what audiences wanted. And um, it was a little hairy to write. Uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein's leaning on Stoppard again and again to make changes, to turn it into the Harvey Weinstein story. It, it's really extraordinary. Once you get, you know, beneath the, uh, uh, the surface of a Hollywood film, you can't believe what goes into the sausage making. And really that chapter on Shakespeare in Love is about the sausage making of a film of its moment that says an awful lot about America at the turn of the century. Yeah, no, it's shocking. Is This is sort of, you know, I think of uh, Tennessee Williams' play Suddenly Last Summer, which is quite explicit when it comes to kind of a homosexual character, when the film version was made mid 20th century, the homosexuality was kind of almost completely removed. Um, but you sort of think, okay, 
start of the 20th century or turn of the 20th century, 21st century, sorry, um, you know, liberal Hollywood uh, meets liberal Britain, you would have a, you know, be a much more enlightened approach to stuff, but, but no. Not when money's involved. <laughs> yeah. Well, the um, I'm going to um, uh, just ask one or two more questions, maybe just one more, um, uh, and and open it out to questions from from the audience. We've got loads of questions so far, but please do post more on the Q and A on on Zoom, etc. Um, we're seeing them all, so please do keep posting them, and we'll turn to them very very soon. Um, I want to want to just sort of. Sort of just look at um, ask you, Jim, about sort of Shakespeare in this moment. Um, you know, the you, you write uh, that you know Shakespeare's future. You, you note that ninety odd percent of schools still teach Shakespeare in America, which is you know um, impressive. Uh, but you do, you do write his future seems as precarious as it's ever been. Uh, why is it you 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 think that it is a bit of a uh, a pessimistic note or a kind of, you know, why, given the resilience to date, should we not assume it's going to be just as strong for the next 300 years? I would separate out the American scene from the international one. And let me talk about the international one first, because I think that's more significant. We've all been in lockdown for a year. Nobody has gone or very few have gone to sit in an audience and, and watch Shakespeare performed in the past year. And that, that has never happened since, you know, 1589. People have been going to see Shakespeare plays on stage. We're coming out of a social justice time. We're coming out of COVID. And it is a very unsettled world. And the Shakespeare that was being planned or imagined 18 months ago is just gone. Uh, I spent early this morning uh, on a Zoom call. I'm a member of the board of directors of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And they are anticipating the changes in the world and in the UK. Right before I came on, I was in a conversation at the public theater where they too, in an even more radical way, are trying to address issues that have been percolating in the last year, political ones, social ones, gendered ones. And I think Shakespeare is, in a way, the point of the spear of social change, Shakespeare productions. And what the next two years of Shakespeare will be will have a profound effect for the next half century, even on whether his plays are studied and taught uh, and staged. So all I can really generalize and say is those who are producing Shakespeare right now are aware of the challenges and they're trying to meet them, whether that means more productions that have actors on stage resembling ethnically, racially, in gendered ways, disability, and every other way the audiences they're facing, but also trying to kind of make Shakespeare meaningful in a post-COVID world. And that's an enormous challenge. And, and, you know, and obviously, you know, one topic that's kind of roiling campuses and, and wildlife right now is the so-called sort of cancel culture and, you know, the need for trigger warnings and things. I'm not taking a side on any of that, but, you know, people have talked about uh, the challenges perhaps of, of performing or even studying plays like The Merchant of Venice, 
um, because of you know the the, the you know the sensitivities it might trigger in in the students or the audience. Uh, do you think that's uh, you know going to play a part in the way Shakespeare is is studied and performed? I'm king in my classroom. And I walk in the first day, as I have for the last 30 some odd years, hold up a copy of the first, you know, of the collected works of Shakespeare and say, here's your trigger warning. There is rape, mutilation, violence, alcoholism, incest. And I just run off 30 or 40 things. And I said, and that's just our first play, Titus Andronicus. If you have trouble with conflict, this class is not for you. That having been said, I can teach the rape of Lucrece have a student, a young black woman stand up and say, I am not going to be forced to experience a rape from the perspective of a rapist. And she'll get up and walk out and I'll applaud that. Mm. I, I think there are a range of responses. Canceling is not a useful one, but anger is and clarity is only achieved through conflict. Yeah, amen to that. Well, look, lots of, uh, lots of clarity uh, and, and great questions from, from the audience. So please do keep them coming, but we're going to turn to these, uh, you know, right, right now. So, um, you know, so many, so many to start, start from, but uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Michael Dickinson to kick off. And he wrote, I would like to ask James what he thinks might be the possibilities of Shakespeare's work in healing the divisions in America. If right-wingers want to storm the stage, what chance does this writer's work have of reaching them? So thanks, Michael. That's a really, really great question. And I give that a lot of thought. And I, uh, you know, I, I don't just address leftist audiences. I've gone out to Bohemian Grove to speak about Shakespeare with the rich white people who run this country, mostly white, I should say, and all male, since women are not allowed onto the premises. I also go to Rikers Island jail. So I'm speaking to those across the social and uh, uh, political hierarchy in this country. I just think we have to um, talk about the plays, teach the plays, and have civil discussions about where we understand what these plays are teaching us. I don't think it's easy. I think it's crucial that the only thing that not happen is that Shakespeare gets canceled as he was in you know, 1642 when the Globe Theater was pulled down and that was the end of Shakespeare's company and a civil war ensued. I, I don't think that's an impossibility. I speak to you today in a day where Congress, the House of Representatives didn't show up because there was a threat of violence again at the Capitol. So I, I'm not being Pollyannish or naive. I think that's the right question. I think it boils down to smart people invested in teaching and staging Shakespeare, opening up conversations after every production to audiences to air their differences. There's no one single right takeaway from these plays. Yeah, there's a great, um, thank you for, for the answer. And um, great question from Eugene O'Hare as well, um, who provocatively writes, do you think Shakespeare would be rather bored with our current Anglo-American culture wars? Don't you only get somewhere, writes Eugene, with, with gender, race, power, and sex when you start talking, as Shakespeare did, about class and money, too? The number of conflicts you find in a play is, is just staggering. You know, we, 
we've even talked about The Merchant of Venice as a play about anti-Semitism. I walk into my class and say, this is not a play about anti-Semitism. And I kind of back it up saying, I spent seven years researching and writing a book called Shakespeare and the Jews. So I have the facts to back it up. The play begins with a, a man who loves another man saying, I, I can't tell you why I am so sad. It's about sexual difference. It's about gender difference. It's about racial difference. It's about national difference. These plays ride all these differences. Shakespeare is writing 400 years ago at a time where people are kind of formulating notions of race, state, nation, or reformulating them. And all these tensions are embedded as if in amber in these plays. And we come and to mix metaphors, unpack them and confront the very things that we are wrestling with either in our own identities or in our cultural battles. I'm not sure that answered the question, but that's how I heard it. Yeah. Well, look, do keep the questions coming, everyone. These are great, great questions and great, great, uh, you know, very cool Jim to think on his feet so, so brilliantly. There's a, there's a question from uh, Anonymous. Uh, um, has a great question, which is, um, given the, I'm going to paraphrase something, but, you know, given the, um, you know, the way in which Shakespeare's plays have been interpreted, um, you know, in particular, like one play may have really risen up when thinking about race and so on. Um, which play do you think, Jim, will think uh, will translate best into post-COVID commentary, if any? Clearly, this is lockdown, COVID, the you know, tumultuous. That's a, it's a great question, and and I sit down with producers and companies, who all say, well, what should we stage, and. Do we do tragedy because people have experienced terrible tragedy and they are going to have access to what these plays are about in ways audiences typically don't. But the stronger argument is let's do comedy because comedy is going back to an earlier question are about healing, are about community, are about resolving difference. And I think I'm not giving away any uh, uh, embargoed information that on both sides of the Atlantic, we should expect to see comedies and late romances, plays like The Tempest and the Winter's Tales, Cymbeline and Pericles, that are about loss and overcoming loss, and comedies that are about reconciliation. I think I need that. I uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a theater junkie. I haven't been in a theater in over a year. Uh, I'm going to be there every day once it opens. And I need some comedy to wash over me and begin that process of healing. So I'm not walking down the street looking at somebody who's unmasked. And I've had two Moderna vaccinations. And I'm still looking at them like, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I want that anger to disappear. I want comedy to be the mode. So it's a fantastic question and, and, and answer. I think actually, sorry, the question was from Stephanie Sullivan, I should say, rather than, rather than anonymous. Um, um, uh, lots of other questions. One from um, Emma Smith, um, who writes, um, you've mentioned the limitations in performing Shakespeare's plays in previous centuries. She writes, um, can you think of any free, I think, I think there might be a typo in the second half of it, but I think it's, you know, what kinds of um, uh, restrictions on the freedom of production um, have there been? What examples of that in, in American life? 
what censorship or, or other kinds of other kinds of restrictions over the years. You know, the last time I saw real efforts at uh, censorship uh, of any of the play, well, the play that always raises hackles is The Merchant of Venice in 1962 when Joe Papp wanted to open up the public theater. Jewish organizations opposed it. I've been working working on productions in a previous decade in which uh, people are nervous about that play. I know that there are many African-American and Black actors who are not comfortable with Othello because a lot of audiences bring that T.S. Eliot perspective that Othello is a kind of uh, uh, loser, self-hating Black man and all that. So Censorship works in various ways. There's self-censorship uh, and there are outside forces that try to censor these plays. My own rule of thumb is unless a play is going to produce violence, and I can imagine, and I've written about how some plays do, the show goes on, that we need to uh, confront these things rather than to censor them. But I, I, I think there are always pressures. Censorship might be too strong a word, but there always, there's always a tug of war about every one of these plays and who gets to speak the words, who is cast. These are really hard decisions mm -hmm. and they're fraught because they matter. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, a question from Charles Ewald um, that speaks to the kind of future relevance uh, of, of, of Shakespeare. He, he writes, what happens to Shakespeare when vernacular English changes so much that Elizabethan English becomes inaccessible to the general public? I assume this is a question that could have been asked at any point in the last few hundred years. It doesn't stop it being hugely relevant today, but really interesting, really interesting point. You know, if you go on Amazon and type in Shakespeare and look at best-selling Shakespeare books, it's not my books. It's not Stephen Greenblatt's books. It's No Fear Shakespeare. No Fear Shakespeare is a rendition of Shakespeare's language into uh, second-rate American neutral language. And I've walked into productions uh, where directors are sitting there, not with the ardent Shakespeare, but with No Fear Shakespeare, because they can't wrestle with the language. And I will say this, and it's a great question. And in fact, in uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival a number of years ago, a, a, uh, a lovely internet billionaire went to see a play with his wife. They couldn't understand it. So he gave them millions of dollars to hire people to translate all of Shakespeare into modern American English and stage those. And uh, loving conflict, I went to war in the pages of the New York Times with this because all we have with Shakespeare is the language. That's all there is. He didn't even invent these stories. He, he stole them from other writers. So take away the language, you can't call it Shakespeare. I work with prison productions and the public theater has a mobile unit that sends eight actors into 15 or so or 20 prisons and uh, halfway houses in the New York metropolitan area. And I work with the actors and I work with the directors. And sure, we cut out some topical humor that nobody's gotten in 400 years, but the language is all Shakespeare. And we take these two pretty heavy duty maximum prisons and uh, they get it. You can't tell me that if 
playgoers who have never read Shakespeare, never seen a play in their lives, are watching Shakespeare and getting it. Maybe not every word, maybe 60%, but they understand things that I don't, living lives closer to the traumatic things that uh, are in Shakespeare's play. Uh, I, I remember seeing on the roof of the Metropolitan Prison, downtown Manhattan, a production of Hamlet with the great Shakespeare actor, Chucky Woody, uh, uh, as Hamlet. And when he got to the to be or not to be speech, and he got to the line about with a bear bodkin, you know, these prisoners are not going to know what a bear bodkin is. But Chuck pulled up his sleeve, wrapped his belt around his arm, and made as if he was shooting up when he got to that bear bodkin moment, talking about to sleep, to dream, to be or not to be. And I'm telling you that these inmates were locked in and they understood Hamlet's words better than I ever will. So if you educate the actors, which I spent a lot of my time doing, and a director, audiences are going to get that language. Uh, you know, you don't abandon the language. That's a plea. Yeah. Uh, we have a great question. Last question from the audience, and then I'm going to ask one last one and then we'll, uh, uh, we'll we'll let everyone get back back to their days um great question that's just just come in um anonymous uh jim do you think the sonnets relate as wonderfully to the modern world as the plays do it's a great question because uh you know we haven't talked really at all about the, the the sonnets you know i think not only the sonnets but some of the longer poems that are never discussed Mm. At the end of the sonnets, the last 11 pages of the 1609 volume in which those sonnets were first published, is something called A Lover's Complaint about a woman who is ditched and destroyed by a, uh, a guy who might as well have written the sonnets. And that is a great poem. The Rape of Lucrece, or Lucrece as I prefer to call it, is a play about consent. That is front and center, both political consent and sexual consent. If you want a textbook work of literature in order to hash out what those things mean and how they intersect, Lucrece is the great text for that. The sonnets too, although everybody has his or her own uh, that are so powerful. So absolutely, they are just a tougher nut to crack. And the only way for me really to gain access into them is to sit with a group of people, whether it's six or 16, uh, and work it out slowly. We don't have the patience for that in our modern world. We read quickly, we listen, we're distracted. Those poems require a patience, which I really had to fight to muster. Yeah. There is, I feel, feel, you know, if I'm going to plug one book today that's not one of one of Jim's, uh, there, there's a brilliant book by Don Patterson um, called Reading Shakespeare's Sonnets, yeah. uh, commentary. And so you have the sonnet and then um, a commentary from this, you know, great Scottish poet. And they're funny and dark. And when he thinks the poem, the sonnet's a bit crap, he'll say so. Um, and he's very, very explicit on his views about Shakespeare being uh, gay, for example, it's just a great, great read, full of references to Aerosmith and lots of other stuff. Um, but yeah, Don Patterson's book on 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 the yeah, it's a great book. I recommend it. Um, last question for me, really, as you know, a huge, huge fan of yours, Jim. And as I say, um, sixteen oh six, fifteen ninety nine. Do pick those up if you haven't read them already. 
is there any chance you might be working on a third in that series, picking another year of of, of Shakespeare's life? You know, Faber is he was Tempest and sort of you know went on his way. Or um, I wish I could franchise out all the other years and retire a rich man. <laughs> and my publishers would always be happy if I ever I wrote what I think of as Rocky Three after fifteen ninety nine and sixteen oh six. I haven't shared this with my publishers yet, um, but I am still obsessed with America. And I think we're going to see a kind of Rocky II, a follow-up to Shakespeare in a divided America. As I wrestle a little bit more with what it means to have a national theater mm. and for theater to shape a culture in an American context. So... Mm. That's what I've been hunkered down, thinking hard about during COVID. And uh, bring me back in four years and we'll talk about that. This episode was brought to you by Second Home as part of our Creative Collisions podcast. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what events we have coming up.